0: Folks, take it from me, NBA legend Bill Walden. Like all great experiments in American history, the 3 and D-Love podcast will revolutionize
1: your life. Welcome to the 3 and D-Love NBA podcast. Thanks for joining us, and I'm your host, Michael Eaney. We're joined, as always, by the brother, Ryan Eney, and, of course, our namesake, the venerable D-Love, Derek Lovegren. Here we go.
0: Thank you, Michael. All right, guys, this weekend review starts on a somber note as a wave of injuries hit the NBA over these last several days. Starting with the most severe injury, LaMelo Ball broke his wrist and will be out for the remainder of the season. LeBron James suffered a high ankle sprain and will be out indefinitely. And Steph Curry injured his tailbone but isn't expected to. Uh, to miss too much time. So definitely feel for LaMelo with the broken wrist. Obviously he was the leading candidate for rookie of the year. Not sure if he will still be eligible for that award or not, but uh, really sad for him.
1: It, it's certainly weird to have the presumptive favorites in both the MVP and the rookie of the year races get hurt in the same week. Wait, Nikola Jokic got hurt. <laughs> he got hurt too. I didn't hear that. <laughs>
0: Isn't that why Embiid, because he did not win Rookie of the Year. Well, uh,
1: yeah, he played 31 games, I think. But the the (laughs) Lifetime Achievement Award Committee called Rye and said said LeBron James was the presumptive favorite. I think Vegas agreed.
2: Jokic is next. He's going to get hurt. Giannis is going to be the only man left standing. He goes back into his third straight MVP.
0: Well, I'm just realizing I had LaMelo for rookie of the year and I had LeBron for MVP. This is a tough tough week for the
1: prognosticator. Watch out for Luca. He's coming, man. He's coming.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Last one standing wins. Yeah, seriously. Otherwise, guys, we are officially into spring, which means that this is the time where the amateurs attempt to overshadow the professionals in the NCAA tournament. So unless you have the NBA League Pass, this unfortunate distraction means less NBA games available to watch. We are told that the (laughs) amateurs bring more energy and fundamentals to the game, which would count for something if the pros weren't significantly more athletic and skilled. (laughs) <laughs> but i guess the tournament is an well, entertaining concept and your it, work pools and whatnot
1: it, it would also hold some water if the, the nc2a wasn't uh, taking advantage of 18 to 22 year olds all over the country
0: <laughs> yes exploitation as <laughs> well, well yes
2: well and one of the differences you used to see people point out was how fun it was to see in the tournament the bench warmers the walk-ons do their little like leg kicks and dances and how excited they get for their for their teams and for the big stars in their team as they would play and, and win and compete. But I would take the current NBA benches against any NCAA bench, any any day of the week and twice on Sunday. Seriously. They are so fun. They're so engaged, especially now that they can spread out actually. They're all really tall guys, they're not stuck on this bench like just next to each other they all have like the chair that phil jackson used to have uh, <laughs> when he, end of his coaching career and they're spread out and they can really get going um the royal some good chair. trash talking some good three-point uh you know theatrics so uh, kent basemore
1: yeah. is very honored that you you recognize yes. the value he's brought to the nba
2: Yes. I, I, yeah, if that was Bazemore, I don't know if it was LeBron, whoever brought in that it was cool to be into it for the bench and to be excited and cheer on guys who might be younger than you and maybe not even much better than you, but you can still cheer them on. It's it's great. So uh,
0: NBA all day. I thought that started with Popovich when he, he took Patty Mills aside and he's like, look, Patty, part of your role here is to be <laughs> – cheerleader on the bench in uh, 2014 when they won the times like everybody's got a role to play so we need to come and make some shots but we need some energy off the bench I remember that (laughs) Patty took it up on that I,
1: I will say as an aside in March Madness I think it I'm I'm generally a proponent of banning the charge doing away with the charge call but it really like what is it with college basketball and their in an infatuation refs' infatuation with calling charges? Like it's literally a charge off. It's like you know, you know, teams in the NBA will trade three point possessions, right? They'll come down, little will hit a three, Curry will come back down, he'll hit a three. I swear, in March Madness, it's like, oh, this this uh, heady white point guard took a charge. Oh my gosh, the six eight uh, wing took a charge, and it just it's kind of back and forth. The refs just fall in love with it. I I just. It is like unwatchable for me outside of a few special teams that, that I kind of lean into kind of rooting for. I mean, obviously, the, the variability that comes with March Madness it can be fun. But overall, the product is just I, I cannot handle watching much more than a game or two a day. It's, it's awful.
2: And going back to the ref point, Michael. I think we have to keep in mind that those refs at the college level, in many cases, were reffing high school basketball just a few years before. You know, there is like a the, the sort of train people get on. They get a mentor. I was talking to, you know, friend of the podcast, um, Aubrey. Uh, he was walking me through how the referee business works. And you start in high school. You sort of go to small calls. You sort of work your way up. So the the he actually he was playing, and he had he played in college, and there were guys refing him in high school that then refed him in college too, and they were just as bad <laughs> as they were in high school. Anyone who played or watched high school basketball, that's 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 the uh, the pool of talent. Uh, college basketball, and I guess the NBA <laughs> eventually too is is uh, attracting. So uh, keep that in mind.
0: I think well, maybe you I'm, get. You get evaluated for how many charges you call or your success rate of calling charges. I don't know. It really, it really might be. It feels like that way sometimes. I will yeah, say it's the, the – equi-
1: Oh, go ahead, Ryan.
2: It's the equivalent – It's like the college equivalent of Joey Crawford, the infamous NBA referee, if you're able, listeners, to continue through Kerry Yeager's book, it's a very large book. But if you keep digging in there towards the end, there's some great nuggets. Well, there's nuggets throughout, but there's some great nuggets at the end when he interviews Joey Crawford. And Joey Crawford, for those who don't know, the, the younger l- listeners, was, again, a notorious referee for um, just his showboating, bringing attention to himself, you know, tossing people for no reason, hating Tim Duncan.
0: Feuds with. What was that? Hating Tim Duncan. Right.
2: And then that's the great example. He actually tossed Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan was on the bench and he actually tossed Tim Duncan from the game. And it, 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 I think, what did he say, D, afterwards? It was like he looked at me funny or something. Yeah, it was a funny <laughs> look. Was, yeah, it was a funny look. But if you read Kerry Eager's book, Joey Crawford does not hide it. He admits it to Kerry Akers. He says that his mentor, talk about the referees working their way up, and they all have their mentor. You have to learn from someone. Like we have a family friend who refs in the Pac-12 for football, and he started in high school. He refed my games in high school. He's like, hey, Bob, how's it going? Hey, Ryan. You know, and then He uh, refed me in,
1: in peewee football. I mean, yeah. It goes that he, far he didn't back. He really,
2: didn't really give
0: us any favoritism. But, uh, <laughs> and then, then he got the breakthrough with uh, Arizona State. <laughs> Because that's true. Coach, that's when true. Dennis, Dennis Erickson, well, I remember that story. Yeah.
2: So he worked his way up, but he had a mentor. And so uh, Joey Crawford's mentor taught him that, and he, Joey Crawford admitted this to Carrie Eggers that if someone on the court is interrupting your flow, interrupting your focus, <laughs> Then you're not not only should you, but you're obligated to eject that person from the game so that you can renew and refocus your focus on the game. He admitted that in writing. I mean, I don't remember that coming out when he tossed Tim Duncan and he got kind of pulled off regular referees duties for a while that was what he was taught to do I mean it's okay. no wonder no wonder these refs kind of make themselves they love the block charge calls they love making themselves the center of attention
0: that's hilarious remember there was a guy Jake O'Donnell who hated the Blazers he just thought all the Blazers were were crybabies and he carried the grudge with him when Drexler got traded to Houston there was a playoff series where he Drexler got kicked out early on in the game and he almost he he tried to charge O'Donnell is like the a whole nother side to Clyde Drexler that we saw and so maybe it was a thing back then I think they've worked on that but there's still
2: they still like to kind of be in the show they still like to be in the show but especially in college that's exactly right they they're like I love when they kind of – the refs in college will sort of start to do – oh, is it a block? Is it a block? Oh, no, it's a charge. The arm came out. It's a charge.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, that that was a segue, and uh, we will not give college basketball any more time for probably about another year. But uh, I had to <laughs> acknowledge the t- attention they're stealing from the NBA. I,
1: I will just say last thing. Go beeves.
0: Go Ducks. <laughs> Okay, back to the NBA, guys. Uh, a, a rivalry of top teams in the Eastern Conference is heating up after the Bucks beat the 76ers in overtime last week. Giannis had 28 points and 13 rebounds in the second half after scoring only four points and having two boards in the first half. Giannis began celebrating once they took control in the overtime by sitting on the court after a made <laughs> shot and timeout. Dwight Howard took offense to this, feeling that Giannis was mocking the 76ers. <laughs> Howard said that he wanted to stone-cold stunner a Steve Austin WWF reference to Giannis, but he said he did not do so because he already had a technical foul. So there's a lot we can break down here with this guy. So First of all, I don't think it mattered. It doesn't matter whether you have a technical foul or not because a wrestling move would warrant an immediate ejection. (laughs) Secondly, uh, good luck because Giannis is like 99% muscle and a good decade plus younger than Howard as well. And Howard also responded by saying that they would be seeing them again down the road, which is a violation of the unspoken trash talk rule that a team's 10th man, and that's being generous, Can't make predictions about his team getting the better of his opponent in a future matchup. You've heard of that unspoken one before,
2: and you missed that. You know, Dwight Howard's about as over the hill as his WWE reference. I don't know. (laughs) It's like Lauren Michaels says that your your favorite SNL cast is the one when you were in high school. I think I think uh, Dwight's
0: favorite WWE wrestlers were when he was in high school. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And I will say the early 90s is when I stopped uh, watching WWF, so I'm a little outdated on that, too. (laughs) I didn't know that was a dated reference. (laughs) It's funny, guys, that we brought up officials because uh, Paul George was fined $35,000 for critiquing officials last week, complaining he gets too many no-calls, so a star player doesn't feel he gets enough calls. You've got to be kidding me with that. Just take a number and, and get in line, Paul. I mean, if only, guys, there was a system a system to scrutinize every call and continually evaluate each referee so they would be motivated to ensure their livelihood and longevity, thus offsetting any potential for bias. Oh, wait, that is the current referee system. That is what Secaucus, New Jersey does, that evaluate every single referee. So after you know after after George took shots at Lillard in the bubble last year, uh, for missing those key free throws, we do look for any chance to kind of stick it to him. So we have the research team fair, monitoring. Fair enough, his, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. The research team monitors his Twitter feed around the clock. So, <laughs> um, but guys, uh, I also owe the Atlanta Hawks an apology. Excuse me, the number four seated in the Eastern Conference, <laughs> Atlanta Hawks. I clearly underestimated them. Uh, but Michael will be owing them an extensive apology Apology as part of our bet. Uh, you have to, to have a letter of admission of wrong, I think, was the bet. Is that right, Michael? Did you want to – That, that you is, a that is the wager.
1: Uh, payment will come in full at the conclusion of the season. And in, in, in once confirmed, uh, a losing bet is in place. I, you know, Atlanta, I, I will admit, you know, I didn't know the Nate Renaissance was coming in the way that uh, – it has. It certainly helps to play the Cavs like 13 times in a row. I think is, it was the rough <laughs> estimate. Uh, Colin, Colin Sexton was doing doing Trey Young some favors, but uh, it's fun to see. I mean, there's certainly an interesting team here coming uh, down the last kind of 30 or so games, and, and they have plenty of time to pile up some losses.
0: It's funny how they, they finally get uh, above 500, and now they're just in the fourth slot in the Eastern Conference. <laughs> oh. But, uh, guys, going to return to another somber note here. Uh, one of the, the great NBA legends, former Laker, I'm going to say former Seattle U player, Elgin Baylor passed away today at the age uh, of 86. A um, uh, lot to say about Elgin, but maybe we can actually talk about him for, for a little bit. Um, impressive career. He was the, the Clippers GM for a long time and uh was there during some rough stretches as an executive but uh, an incredible career uh, what do we want to say about elgin
2: well let's start off i'd be remiss if i didn't start off uh, being based in the nation's capital that he is the uh, pride of dc he's the greatest player to ever come out of washington out uh, of the district um as as d noted he ended up in seattle u um it's a, long, it's a long way to go, and he you know, led his team to the final NCA final uh, where they lost, and then he went on to the you know Minneapolis Lakers. He, I think he was the only the longest serving player after they moved to Los Angeles, and obviously had an amazing career, but really a star crossed career. So he um, teamed with Jerry West with the Lakers and just had an incredible run together, but could never get over the top. And it's something Jerry West is known for more than Baylor for some reason. Um, But Baylor should really be known for it more because he actually retired um, the year, early in the year, that the uh, Lakers um, had that incredible winning streak, incredible season, and ended up winning the title, the first title for West, West, Wilt Chamberlain, and sort of a group of undistinguished players, many of them, Gail Goodrich was a great player, but a number of other just undistinguished players, including, you know, I think the power Forge replaced Elgin Baylor. They went on and won. And so it was a little a little awkward that Baylor and West have been together for so long and, and lost so many times to the Celtics, and then he retires the season. They go on to one of the most incredible, incredible runs. I mean, it's, you know, I think Bill Simmons had the Ewing theory from you know, 20 years ago where the Knicks took off after Ewing got her. I think it should be the Baylor theory because that's one of the more improbable, incredible runs ever <clears throat> that they went on. And then, as you noted, D, he ended up in the general manager's role for the Clippers working for Donald Sterling for a very long time, and he actually um, filed a discrimination lawsuit against him kind of towards the end of his life against Sterling. Um, and, and so I, I think it was just a very – difficult situation I think we forget that the players uh, particularly the players in the 60s um, you know some of them sort of transitioned pretty easily like a guy like Jerry West you think about who sort of seamlessly went into the front office and had a lot of success there Um, but I think you know you think about Baylor you think about Oscar Robertson I mean these are guys that really built the league and just were incredible players were players like I mean I, I think it's agreed that Baylor's skill and talent, his athleticism, the way he approached the game, played above the rim, really would translate in a way that not many players from that era would to the modern game. But, you know, these guys didn't make that much money in their careers, especially back then. And I mean, his career ended in the early 70s. And they were the ones who really fought for the rights, the players rewarded eventually and they they really are the foundation that the league is built on um but you know i think in his lawsuit against donald sterling he admitted like he 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 stuck around and worked for sterling um because he needed the job he needed the money like he didn't have again he didn't have all his endorsements or salary for many years of playing in the league so again like a really you know star-crossed player and it it really a sad story in some ways I don't know if he was the easiest player to play with he was a very like you know just a very unique guy but incredible career Um, it's sad to see him go Um, but uh, you know rest in peace he's a
1: player that I think more than any other from that era, or at least among the few from that era that you could really imagine, I think, translating to the current modern NBA. And and I don't say that as much to just say, hey, what would he look like in the year 2021, but more as a nod of respect to to an architect of, of what the modern game became, right? I mean, players of his ilk are, are what sort of laid the foundation for uh, the vertical nature of basketball I mean, right we just interviewed nick green we talked about some of the origins of the game and it was very much sort of a ground-bound run non-contact sort of game from its inception and i think over time the game evolved and, and so then when you layer in an athlete like elgin baylor a player of his magnitude it really set the foundation for what you know the 70s and 80s and and then and then onward really became right this game that um this game that was vertical this game that was above the rim right there's really kind of this this hang time uh, kind of type of game it just doesn't exist i don't think without a player like elgin sort of uh, leading the way there i think particularly um in the era in the 60s that he played in it's just it's so unfortunate the way that career I think ultimately turned out, but, but he, he, in large part, I think has received his due. It just has as a transformational player. And, and so it's just, it's so sad to see kind of some of the waning years there and the, and the time with the Clippers and, and how everything played out ultimately with, with Sterling and the, and that franchise. But obviously Elgin, um, you know, has, has, a gave a lot to the league and, and that is something to be noted and, and remembered. And, um, you know, so so his passing is, is obviously duly marked as a result.
2: And Jack McCollum has a great book. <clears throat> Excuse me, I mean it, about that seventy two Lakers team that you know, won the title, had the the long winning streak, I think it was thirty three game win streak. Um, and then the one that Bailey retired from due to injury. So and he compares it to the Warriors um, it's. I mean, McCollum has a lot of great books. It's not my favorite book of his, but it's 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 really interesting, and just seeing Baylor's relationship with West, um, and just you know, yeah, to Michael's point, the influence he had in the league is really really astounding.
1: Well, I think one of my favorite stories actually, I think, was there was an All Star game in the mid '60s that ultimately was sort of the the, that resulted in the formation i think of the players union and they were demanding certain freedoms and flexibilities of player movement that and and certain sort of rights and 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 ultimately trying to mature the nba as a labor organization and 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 ultimately what happened was it all came to a head at an all-star game where the players commonly accepted kind of being led by jerry west and elgin baylor and oscar robertson were like we're not going to play if we don't get some of these things that we're sort of asking for. Um, And I think, I think one of the the way the story that I've heard, it goes was the, the Lakers owner basically gave us ultimatum specifically to Elgin Baylor, which, you know, clearly had some, presumably some racial motivations in that too. And, and Elgin Baylor was basically like, sorry, man, like we're not, we're not coming out. And basically, the players called these owners bluffs and and got some of these rights that they were demanding. And I think the game was ultimately played, and obviously, the the, the rest is history. But that was such a foundational thing and an act of courage to see some of these players really stand up in a time where basketball was in its infancy, right? I mean, from a professional league standpoint, the entertainment vehicle that we know today didn't really exist until you know, the mid to late eighties. And, and so to see a player stand up in the peak of his powers, right. I mean, he came in, I think in 59, he, he was, I was done by 71, 72, but you know, in the peak of his powers in the mid sixties and and to leverage that power, I mean, really falls in line with a few guys, a few Titans of that era, but it's just a remarkable sort of testament to to his courage and and his ability to lead uh, the league in that era.
0: Yeah, I didn't realize that he was not part of that championship team. I always thought he had his his one title Me too. as well. No, I thought, I thought the same thing. That, that was the same thing. I mean, I think it was even
2: – I mean, the McCallum book, it just focuses on that year. And it focuses on Golden State and their run too, but kind of goes back and forth with West as the hinge of both stories. But yeah, that that really struck me too, D. I mean, i consider myself a big. I mean, I'm having, I'm on an NBA podcast, you know, but I didn't. Uh, definitely, that's always a surprising thing that in, not only that he wasn't on it, that he retired during the season, like during the year he left, and they replaced. Like they had this guy named Jay McMillan who was, you know, it's just those weird things about basketball or sports where he he was, you know, not super talented, just kind of like a journeyman forward but they had West and Chamberlain they had Gail Goodrich and they had these other guys who just fit their role and they just just went crazy that year I mean they just played incredibly well and it was just you know I mean Elgin was the end of his time and he had been struggling and that's part of the reason he retired but yeah it's just a, it's a crazy story and I think it's
0: it's it's sad when you think about it from Elgin is that he didn't never even want a title so. <laughs> You can always get a pass for not knowing something that happened before you were born, even if you're a host of an NBA podcast. <laughs> okay, thanks, we're not thanks. historians here, you know. I feel better <laughs> now. If the research department got that wrong, it'd be another thing. But. <laughs> they do have one strike against them, but. <laughs> and I didn't realize how how close he was with with West. It, uh, West had some really uh, kind statements that he made about him, you know, being being like a brother to him, and it seems like they were kind of kindred spirits in a way. And as you described uh, Baylor's personality that uh, um, maybe they were withdrawn in their own way, but uh, it seems like they, they really bonded together, uh, which, which is cool. I still, I'd always think of guys like Baylor, Oscar Robertson, how hard that would be to see just the modern players getting paid 50 times uh <laughs> what your salary was more, more than that a hundred times, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And knowing that your talent level was equally better than there is in the opposite direction of that, that that's gotta be tough. Just being like, Oh, I just, I was born at the wrong time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I wonder if that's where some of the criticism from the older players about the league is soft, the league you know, there's all this shooting, you know, you, you saw it, you know, from the inside of the NBA guys with the Warriors and their initial run to the title, uh, criticizing their style. And, but I think it was broader and I think some of those older guys, especially too, but when you had to be, you, you, you had to build the league on your back, you know, and again, like you had to fight for everything you could get to Michael's point, but the all-star game, you know, it's, uh, yeah. And then you see guys like, you know, you see guys like, you know, Joe Harris getting four years, $80 million, and million. You're just like, like, this is the league you built. Like Joe Harris owes that money to you, but it's got to be a little strange not to pick on Joe Harris, but it's that that would be a little, that'd be hard to swallow if, if, you know, you, you know, capped out at a hundred thousand dollars or something, you know, and even well, had to fight for that. I mean, I think
1: it's remarkable when you talk about a player like Elgin Baylor, I mean, what a modern day comp is Blake Griffin, right? He played 10 or 11 years. Towards the end, he had some knee issues that ultimately sapped his his athleticism. And he basically get kind of effectively washed out after 11 years, which is not unlike Elgin, right? I mean, he had some knee issues, then he blew out his Achilles, and then he tried to come back. And that's when he retired in that 72 season. And, you know, Blake had a, a big rookie deal and then two max contracts. I mean, he's made $200 million bucks in his career something in the range of that i mean right we're talking about a a sum of money where blake griffin can go do stand-up at the you know comedy cellar on (laughs) in hollywood and just for the rest of his life if he wants right and
2: and 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 he can pay the he can he can pay pay a uh, crowd of stand-ins to laugh at all of his jokes too (laughs) man it's great (laughs)
0: it's just funny it's Sorry, I'm okay, you have that. It's just funny to me that you you did. There's about hundreds of players you could have singled out, and you and you landed on Joe Harris. I thought you were gonna go Jim McIlvain, but It's true. <laughs> McIlvain would have been better, right? <laughs> oh man, yeah, sorry, that, that, would, that one that hits close. That to kind home. of goes a little close. Yeah,
2: um, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a good comparison. I mean, Elgin Baylor. I, mean, I don't know if it's like poor man to homeless man to working class man or whatever, but I mean, I mean, where does Elgin rank? I mean, he's he's top thirty, right? All
0: time, he's in that I in mean, that range, right? Like the the guy that I think of him, I just compare him a little bit to Doctor J, mm. um, just like graceful. Yeah. yeah, maybe a little poor. I don't know. Who would be higher on the on the rankings, Dr. J? Would they be pretty close, actually? I think they're in the same
2: area code. I mean, I, I feel like – I mean, I haven't looked at a list in a while or done a list in a while, but I'd say they're both in that, like, top 30-ish grouping maybe. I mean, Elgin was amazing. I mean, of his era, I mean, other than, like, Russell and West, you know – I mean, of, like, his actual era, not, like, Jabbar and players that came after, you know. I mean, he's – I mean, Wilth, obviously. I mean, he was right there in that group. We're definitely speaking
0: to our older generation of podcast listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully (laughs) we might lose the younger generation if we keep Todd and Sherwood is eating up every minute of this.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The Elgin Retrospective, brought to you by the (laughs) 3&D.
0: But uh, but a lot we can say about Elgin, but uh, but rest in peace. <laughs> I do I, usually, guys. I give a little bit of a lay of the land in terms of the NBA standings. Um, so maybe we can touch on that here. We it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the Lakers uh, without LeBron and Davis. Of course, now we'll see how their savvy veterans can are they going to win find a, game? a way to win a game or two? I don't know. <laughs> the, it's like. We're
2: going to be running everything through Schroeder. Now we're going to really – our plan comes into effect.
0: I, I, how are they going to win a game? I, I don't mean. know. They need like guys like Wes Matthews to just ha- rediscover the Fountain of Youth for a little bit. <laughs> it's a lot of Sh- Schroeder and Harold pick and roll, dude. It's got to be Kuzma. Kuzma's got to average like uh, 30 oh, points gosh. a game maybe. I don't know.
1: Well, I think when they signed Harrell, it didn't make a lot of sense, I think, from a playoff perspective. But I do think in a situation like this, I mean, we we talked about this before the season started. I think Harrell is a guy who can win you some games, particularly in the regular season, because he, he's in a give-max effort. He can go get 25-10 and 10 against the Pistons, whereas you probably want him playing like seven minutes a game against the Nuggets, right? I mean, it, it, that's just the type of player he is, and, and so... Actually I'm I'm curious to see how it shakes out over the next few weeks. I mean, I don't think it's impossible that Davis is out another month and and LeBron's out 6 or 8 weeks. I mean, if LeBron can give up this this dream of the of another MVP, I think Sorry LeBron,
2: it, that dream is dead. It's dead. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, if he tries to push back in 10 days, I don't think it's impossible. But I would say, um, you know, I'm kind of, I've OD'd on MVP conversations. So I'm going to move on from that comment <laughs> specifically. <laughs> but I just, I think it's fascinating to me if LeBron sort of chills out for a while, what, where do they free fall to, right? I mean, that's the biggest question here. And obviously the top six is a substantially different conversation than the seven through 10 range because of the new element of the play and, Kind of games that will happen right at the end of the year. And that's, I think those playing games are fascinating because clearly it's going to influence all, it's going to influence the league across the board, right? There's only a few teams that can demonstrably say, like, we are not in playoff contention as we approach the trade deadline. And as some of these teams that are higher up in the four, five, six range in both conferences kind of start to look at, the the landscape and make some decisions about how they're going to manage their roster, how they're going to kind of allocate playing time. You know, you hit on the injuries. I mean, LeBron and AD are out. KD is out and Bede is out. I mean, you have all of these sort of serious players on the shelf for the time being, and it's a weird year, right? It's a, it's, it's a shorter year. There's more back to backs. There's more, you know, three and fours, things like that, where you have, these condensed rush schedules I mean this the, the the evidence suggests that we're going to run into more injuries anyway so if you rush guys back you're only going to compound those things and, and guys and, are recovering from COVID <laughs> I mean, and, and you throw throwing COVID thing. on top of it I mean it's insane that's to like, me yeah and so you have all these different dynamics that to me is fascinating I mean I find it far fetched that the Lakers would drop out of that top six but I don't think it's impossible I mean they're five or six games ahead of that sort of range and you know if they go on a four, five six seven game skid you know that's only a couple of weeks of, of of playing time and all of a sudden you know they're in the five seed um so they,
2: but, they, but they have they have schruder they have harrell they have kuzma i mean is there a fourth guy that holton is it holton tucker or <laughs> like the like the dream you <laughs> can score dream of
0: lakers twitter i mean is that their fourth guy right now Because i think we're gonna find out how injured anthony davis really is because (laughs) if this has all been just a ploy to like make sure he's fresh for the playoffs they may have to expedite those plans people thought ad was
2: upset when lebron went down because of his friendship with lebron and how it impacted their nba NBA championship opportunity but really it's because ad actually has to play
0: now (laughs) really he was looking forward to taking the rest of the week, a couple weeks off. It's like, would it's like with Durant? Would he would he play if he absolutely had to right now? You know, who knows?
2: Yeah, with LeBron, you know, he's like he has a serious injury. Yes, I mean, he we know that at least. So, it is a bummer for him. I mean, it he you gotta love his competitive spirit to just I mean just to be like I don't. I'm not going to take time out. I'm not going to do it. I mean, it's kind of a, it's always weird with LeBron. You look at it and say, oh, is he is he actually being selfish? It's sort of like the selfish assist thing. It's like, is he being selfish by not taking time off? But we really want our guys to want to play all the time. But yeah, he, his, his competitiveness is underrated. I know when we were talking about Nowitzki and Kobe a few weeks ago in terms of guys you have, you know, such a strong competitive streak and Zach crane noted that LeBron sort of fakes that he doesn't, but he does. And he just like works so hard and so intensely and is so competitive. So yeah, I hope, hope
0: he gets back quickly. And speaking of the playoff picture, so I guess with the plan tournament, the warriors will still be alive, but right now they're, they're in nine and Dallas has, Lock on aid and they're they're kind of hitting their stride uh what do we think about uh our old friend coach kerr and the uh little chief triangle and the the warriors especially with curry and the tailbone injury at least he's going to be out for a little bit maybe a week but not uh, not a prolonged injury but uh what do we think about the uh, the state of the warriors
1: you know, Steve Kerr needs to just take a breath and step aside and just just relax for a few minutes. I mean, he came out today and he's doing a podcast with Roger Bell and The Ringer and and Logan Murdoch, and he's quoted as just. I think he says that he enjoyed last season's fifteen and fifty season compared to the nineteen year with the last Durant, like the last Durant season. He, so did he enjoyed- we. He enjoyed his lottery season even better. I, I, I just don't know what's going on in Kerr's head. I mean, last week we implored him to be true to himself. I'm not totally sure that They may have been misguided, to be really honest. I kind of just want – I mean, maybe we can bring Luke Walton back in a temporary role. Yeah. That worked out pretty well a couple years ago. Maybe he needs to go Dang. in for back surgery. I don't
2: know, but like Steve Kerr There's is, alternative therapies available, Steve. Just go, relax, take it easy.
0: I was saying earlier there's a there's a precedent for this. Uh Chuck Daly was when he c- coached Orlando toward the end of his career. He's like I'm having more fun here than I ever had winning championships with the, with the Pistons. Even though it's a it's a <laughs> you you hear coaches talk about how their lives are not complete until they get a championship. Uh but there's there's a expression we have in the counseling world. It's not expression, it's sort of a concept. Uh, uh, it's called Hedonistic adaptation, which means you get what you want in life, and then you realize it's it's a uh, it's not so great, and it wasn't quite as great uh, along the way as you thought it would be. The journey. Did you just wasn't describe so... Kevin
1: Durant. <laughs> I, I think.
0: I think yes, yes. Hed- as, hedonistic as our, adaptation. As our last guest, Jonathan
2: Sharks noted, even NBA basketball players are unhappy for the most part, so, and they have the greatest jobs that anyone could ever hope for. Because you
0: reach. You know, I, Oh go ahead. I,
2: I I think, yeah sorry to interrupt. I, you know, I, I think part of it for Kerr is that Durant leaving really impacted his own identity as a coach because I think his identity was that he is a great coach for great players. Right? Just like his 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 mentor Phil Jackson and to you know, similarly at least till Kawhi left Popovich, where they had the strong relationship with their stars and, you know, they just stuck with them. And, you know, Durant really, you know, really changed that because, changed that narrative because he didn't have time for that. He didn't have time for Kerr and Kerr's, you know, his his voodoo didn't work on Durant. It didn't, he didn't come around to it. Um and that speaks to Durant's, I think, both his strength and weaknesses as a player and how he approaches the game. Um, but I, I just think for Kerr, that, you know, it isn't something he can ever really get over. Just that, why would you leave? Like, why would you reject this team and this opportunity we have? Now that we know they all got hurt, I mean, they would have been a lost season. He would have been 15-50 and 50 either way, even if Durant hadn't left. But I, I just think Kerr is still he, – he just have an identity crisis, I think. And it's like now he's this coach of this middling team. He's not able to really lift them up without Clay. You know, you see the way he's gone after Wiseman. I'm definitely concerned about him. He might need to get a ranch in Montana and go out there for a while and watch the Buffalo or something.
0: He's definitely a little bit conflicted. I remember, you know, Pete Carroll, head coach of the Seahawks, was a mentor of his and he used to spend some time with Carroll in training camp. He, he may need to go back to spend some more time with him because I remember Carroll first asked him, I think it was when he first started coaching the Warriors, and he was like, What's your team's identity? And he and he didn't have an answer for that. And so apparently part of his shtick was, you know, we're gonna we're gonna have an identity here and whatnot. And then I remember, you know, years later, someone asked Kerr, I think it was the last year with Durant, or it could have been the following year. They said, what is your team's identity? And he said, our identity? He said, I don't know, hanging up banners? I mean, They had three <laughs> at the time. And I was like, well, that's interesting for what I've heard him say <laughs> previously about the importance of identity. So clearly he's conflicted, that little side story just
1: bring home that point <laughs> well just to be fair when we're talking about identity I think Pete Carroll would say his identity is to run the damn ball and meanwhile oh. his star quarterback is on his way out of town so that I, <laughs> I'm not sure that identity taking your identity uh, recommendations from Pete Carroll Steve if you're listening I doubt you are but if in case you are <laughs> run the other direction listen to your star players relate to your star players when they're going through uh, their hedonistic adaptations you know, walk through those with them. <laughs> but don't because run the ball at the one yard point. line. Oh, sorry. Trying to prove <laughs> your point. Yeah, don't throw the ball in the one don't yard throw line. The ball. But trying hey, to. Hey, hey, D. Prove, yeah, sorry. that's too too soon. Always. <laughs> too soon. When you're trying to prove your point with your 19 year old rookie of the year candidate or your 32 year old superstar, either way, I mean, he's just fighting such a losing battle. I
2: just, you. you it's kinda, not about you, Steve. It's not about you. <laughs> well,
1: I just, it's it's. It, that's so right. And I just wonder, like, at what point does he just need to hang it up and kind of move on? Like, I, I wonder, is the franchise going to kind of have uh, I, I can't get the idea of like a conscious uncoupling out of my brain. It feels like something such as Steve Kerr uh, uh, ism would would fit is just that Curtis is going to move on at the end of this season it just feels so predictable at this point he just there's no joy left in Kerr as a coach which I just I think previously you kind of assumed he kind of seemed like the cool dad and now he now he kind of shows up and you're like man you've changed uh and it just kind of bums me out for that franchise because they do have a, a really interesting coalition of, of, of players there that I think going forward could be a fun group of guys in sort of this tail end of Curry's prime.
2: Yeah. If, if Embiid, well, actually if Ben Simmons was a better player, I think coach Kerr might be in Doc Rivers in Doc Rivers seat if you pull the full fill but unfortunately he wasn't automatic title contender so he's still uh, sticking it out but I don't know That it, it, you always forget with Phil that he had he had a place to go eventually you know he knew where he was he was going to head he, he he could read the writing on the wall so i think it's just we talked about before Kerr having to kind of go through this transition is um, you know, it's been hard for him, and yeah, I I think he's also someone who sort of knows the right things to say, but they're not always true. So it, he'll say this is a players' league, and he'll say all the right things because he's like, you know, it's sort of like Doc and some other coaches. They they have the marketing right, but then I think when the there's a gap between the marketing and how you really are thinking about things and understand him, he won three titles like in in four years that was incredible run so five finals in a row i mean that was incredible so um, i think things have just changed so
0: and really lots of credit for that that first title i mean we think we would all concede that they had a surplus of talent when they won the last two but you know they were not they did not come into that year as one of the favorites and they obviously he i would say played a role in helping them get to the next level but oh completely (laughs) I, mean, I, I saw them play the year before in
2: the playoffs against the Clippers, like during all the Sterling stuff, went down, um, and yeah, it was under Jackson and, it, and Mark Jackson's last year, and it, it was not, you know, it was not anywhere close. You, you did not, if you if you were watching that game, you were not thinking, oh, the, in a year <laughs> they're gonna make this jump. I mean, also Draymond had not, you know, was sort of still getting some playing time, I and mean, there's some things that changed obviously uh including curry's health but yeah i mean much much credit to curry for that jump for sure
1: it is curious i think this contextualizing it to this year i think golden state obviously has had an up and down season but they are right thick in that play-in kind of range in the western conference along with the kind of memphis and dallas and san antonio but, you know, in Portland and Denver and the four and five are kind of in spitting distance of it, too. And it's just a fascinating thing for me as we come to the trade deadline is this allure of the playing tournament for teams that are sort of on the outside looking in that maybe haven't had success in the last couple of years or in the last decade. If you're the Detroit Pistons, you the idea of getting into the playoffs i think is is pretty tantalizing for some of these teams but it's, like to me i ask my question the question is like what is so attractive about even getting into a play in tournament where you are going to play one game and probably lose or maybe even a couple games and all everything has to go right for you just to get absolutely curb stomped by the Milwaukee Bucks or the Philadelphia 76ers or the Utah jazz or whoever it is, right? These teams that are trying to get that are really pushing for it. I'm just, I'm really fascinated to see how this plays out coming down the, the, then this last several days before the trade deadline is, is what are each of these teams looking at? How honest are they being with themselves as they approach um, these decisions on a number of pretty interesting players, right? I mean, the Pelicans are fascinating to me, right? You have Ingram on this rookie max, you have Zion sort of ascending. You you have SVG looking more and more like a terrible hire. Sorry, Derek. And, and and they have a number of interesting guys. I mean, Redick was a trade candidate, might be a buyout guy now. You have Lonzo who's looking better playing off the ball. And and there's there's a lot of questions there, right? And I mean, and ironically, they're not even in eleventh in the Western Conference. I mean, Oklahoma City, which is a team that was literally supposed to be tanking. Their, their their whole plan was to be bad to increase their likelihood of getting a player like Cade Cunningham or Jalen Suggs or whoever it is that they would ultimately pick. And instead they're almost too good to fail, right? I mean, they have a player like, like SGA who's just killing people. I mean, he's one of those ascendant guards. I mean, we were talking about LaMelo and Jaw last week. I think SGA is firmly in that conversation. And is he a type of guy that that, that Oklahoma City envisions wanting to, Pair a few new lottery picks with going forward, or, or is the timeline too off? Right? I mean, there's a variety of these things where you kind of wonder how does Oklahoma rebuild, OKC rebuild with multiple lottery picks in consecutive years if they're going to have a player like SGA on their roster perpetually? I mean, right? Because if he's just going to continue to win you games, right? If you have players like Lou Dort and um, Darius Baisley. I mean, you have some of these guys that are clear NBA players, but they might not as a collection of talent, get you over, over the, the, the bump in terms of being a championship contender, but they are an interesting collection of talent. Like at what point do you try to match the timing versus uh, push the boundaries and try to make this push into the play in tournament? So again, I just think the dynamics that have arisen out of this sort of seven, eight, 9 10 thing, is going to be a really fascinating dynamic because, I mean, it's been reported heavily so far, right? There's not very many sellers. There's a lot of buyers. There's a lot of people looking to talk themselves into trying to get better for this playoff run because of the perceived nature of the playoffs being pretty wide open. And so I kind of just wonder which teams are going to ultimately flip on that and start to sell, right? The Hawks recently reported Cam Reddish and Bogdan Bogdanovich are going to be available towards the the deadline. Don't sell. Don't sell. Don't right, they're the four seed, and meanwhile, they're looking around at shaking things up. I mean, it's crazy to me, but you know, Travis Schlank has got to be looking at the situation and going, I don't have a championship team. How do I create some capital or some collateral to get better and recognize the deficiencies that I currently have? Right? I mean, it, it's just an interesting dynamic and a new wrench that hasn't previously existed in the league where you know until last year i mean before last year where we're at in the season right now with 30 games left you would start to kind of see the haves and the have not separate and it's just not happened yet it's delayed even further so i'm 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 pretty interested in seeing what that looks like and i think i'm of the opinion that some of these teams need to really kind of look in the mirror and recognize what it is and and get on with their life um but it'll be interesting to see. I mean, what what is that for you guys? Is there any specific teams that you guys look at and kind of go, wow, why, what are they doing?
2: What are they thinking here? Yeah, because of the mismatch of supply and demand, Michael, that you were referring to, because of the play-in tournament and more teams thinking they have a chance or having a chance to get in, at least to play a game or two in the playoffs, I think the really smart GMs will take advantage of that inefficiency and that mismatch of supply and demand. And I think the most obvious example is uh, the Raptors and Masai Ujiri. I I do think that mismatch is going to make it more likely that they trade Lowry um, and, and are open to other moves as well. To improve and sort of look more to making a deeper run next year after having a really up and down difficult season this year, so I I think that I because I, I would want to be I would want to be a a seller um, in this market. You know, I just it's it's hard to know when you're looking at the you know reviewing the news that's out there and the leaks that are out there. You know what teams are actually asking for, what they're actually like demanding for players. I, I think there's a problem where teams just don't value their own players correctly. You know, they they just they want they want the moon for you know sort of a glorified role player. So I I just wonder. I think that almost impacts the ability to move and kind of go back and forth heading to the deadline. But I'd say the Raptors, the team I would watch, and I, and I think to your earlier point about the about the Thunder, Michael, I do think what Jake Fisher said on a recent podcast. You know, with the lottery. Odds changing significantly, so being in the top spot does not have the same relative value it had a few years ago. It's just—I think he even called out the Thunder as an example—is that you know that that they don't have the same motivation just to totally deep six it, and they want to see the players that they have. And he also said that the 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 future sort of focus of these teams is trying to build a culture and trying to build up, you know, something that really great players would be attracted to. So, you know, I think we've seen it a little bit in in Brooklyn and then with the Clippers, although they're both in major markets, so that's unique in its own right, but still building out a good nucleus of younger players who compete and, so I, I wonder if that's the route Presti's going down, especially in a draft that goes fairly deep in terms of that top group, it seems like it's the five or six guys who people are really excited about. And so we'll see what comes of that. But D, what, what are you seeing?
0: Well, first of all, with the play-in tournament, this might be a little bit of a leap in logic, but I see that the Portland Trailblazers are the defending play and tournament champions. <laughs> um, so I think it's a it's a major feat, uh, one of our best accomplishments ever. And Memphis has a lot to avenge for because they, they all <laughs> finished second. So I think there is a there is a lot at stake here. No, a little hyperbole, but I did want to point that out. <laughs> Otherwise, I agree with them points already stated
1: (laughs) well Phoenix I think just hates the play in tournaments so much they decided to bypass it all together this year right
0: yeah seriously
2: yeah I mean they've just been incredible and I and I think you know harking back to the Charks interview just the ability to have guys around Paul and Booker you have Aiton can go to the rim and then having a bunch of guys on the perimeter can all shoot and defend I mean that's 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 a recipe for success when you have one of the greatest point guards who ever lived, still still out there, still competing, ten thousand assists, still. You know, I mean, made third team All NBA last year, Chris Paul, and now he's an All Star again this year. You know, he's he's a threat to be an All NBA selection again this year. You have Booker. You know that 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 mix really works. And one of the things that's really curious to me is that. Why wasn't Chris Paul more in demand last summer? You know, I mean, they didn't get I mean, they, it was a really impressive what Presti could do trading Westbrook for Paul and a bunch of picks and then trading Paul for draft picks. And, you know, Kelly Oubre and, you know, they got some good return for him. But I'm just surprised that, you know, the, the, the Bucks didn't look at that at all. It appeared the Sixers weren't more interested in it Uh, in him it kind of reminds me a little bit of the Harden trade where there was you know the Miami was like no I think we're good here I don't know if he'll adapt very well to a non-Houston setting (laughs) so it's just these guys are so good and they're so good at like orchestrating offense which is the most important thing in the NBA is to be able to you know, score, get get high efficiency shots for yourself and your teammates, and those are two of the greatest ever at doing that. So I don't know, do you guys, looking back on it, I just feel like him playing with Giannis, you know, with all I mean, Drew Hall, they totally different player. They they he's he does different things. He's a great defender, you know. Paul's getting older. It's a totally different dynamic. But I just look at the return that the that the Thunder got for chris paul and wonder why didn't someone else do that because i mean it's the same team as last year plus chris paul <laughs> they don't have Kelly your brain mean, that's that's basically it and they've they've just gone the stratosphere i mean the guy they got out of maryland they drafted in the d league i mean frank kaminsky's playing a lot of four for them still i mean it's it's really chris paul is the difference maker and booker continuing to accelerate and the young wings playing better jay crowder helps too no that's true excuse me right it
0: reminds me of when belichick thought brady was done based on uh his last year with the patriots but I, i think there is something too when a guy reaches a certain age and, and you're waiting to see that decline. And then once it hits, I mean, Paul's Paul's last year in Houston, there was a what seemed like it was a decline. No, he it seemed like it was... Do, yeah, just to continue. Yes. And then he, he gets revitalized and you're like, but was that the last hurrah? Like, if he's already moved in that direction, you think he's just going to revert to that again and, and be done. But uh, there is something... There is a lot to having a savvy veteran that even whatever whatever athleticism does diminish they can make up for it with other intangibles as well so yeah i think uh guys there was a that was a big miss for a lot of teams and my apologies
2: to jay crowder he's one of my my favorite favorite guys so sorry jay for omitting you from the change but what a you what an the for james jones to get chris paul yeah. and sign crowder i mean that's just i mean they're 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 legit they're in that top tier of contenders they have their point differential is i think second only to utah right now i mean they are they are in it and they have great offense
0: they have a good defense and like, they're and utah they're is together. slumping and they are right on their heels so can you imagine right if, if phoenix gets the number one seed i deeply regret we can you can roll back the uh one of our early podcasts right after they got paul i was like hey there's a big th- Three here. I was saying there could be a contender, and then I backed off because I was—I uh, didn't fully commit to it. So, D, I don't Do even know regret? if we released that one. So I yeah. think you're admitting I, it. I had either. ambivalence. <laughs> no, I thought, okay, maybe not. Well, it's <laughs> what's so
1: fun. I think about it all runs together. It's what's so fun about what's coming here in in the playoffs. I mean, there's it's just, May Madness,
2: baby, May Madness. Exactly.
1: It's just yes. so much more wide open. Then even a season like last year, which we thought was particularly wide open itself. I mean, we just, you know, I think you come off of the Lakers winning the title last year, and you kind of think they're the preeminent favorites, and I think they clearly are if they're if they're totally healthy. But it's there's still a lot of other teams there, right? And or we thought it was the Clippers, the Lakers, and the Bucks, and obviously the Bucks are evolving and they're sort of charging, but. Um, they're, they're not necessarily head and shoulders above anyone else. And the Clippers have a whole host of their own problems, uh, that I'm not sure anyone's all that high on. And you throw in some of these newer teams like the jazz and the Suns and the nuggets. And you have the Sixers and the nets and the Eastern conference. And all of a sudden you have seven, eight, nine teams that are really in the mix. And then you have this whole other next tier, like, you know, on large part, the rest of the. Western conference sort of playoff teams and, and, you know, you have the heat probably in the Eastern conference is probably the only other next team, maybe Boston, uh, as teams that, that conceivably can make can kind of get into that realm. And it's, there's just so many buyers that, that, and there's so few sellers that I'm just so I'm so amazingly fascinated to see how it all turns because you have a team like Dallas, who's, finally gotten healthy, right? You have this weird COVID year where teams are just getting decimated and, and Dallas was one of them. And and you th- they're starting to make this charge. And meanwhile, the turd in the punch bowl is that Christoph Porzingis is just – was a total miss. I mean, it was a total whiff for that team. I mean, it was a great – I think it was a great trade. I think it made a lot of sense. They gave up a couple of picks. And really, big swing. Big swing. They took a big swing on it. And if, and if Porzingis comes back from those injuries the way that he potentially had looked – him and Doncic are, are dominant together. And meanwhile, he's sort of a shell of himself. He's basically a shooting five. He doesn't ever want to really roll hard. He has no rolling gravity there from like an offensive perspective. And he's, I mean, he was a difference maker defensively before he got hurt. And now he's just, he's his back line. I mean, he needs a back line partner that can actually protect the rim. And he's 7'3". I mean, it's crazy to me. And so you have a team like Dallas that you kind of wonder what type of assets they can put together. If they want to to continue to build something around Doncic, right? You have Portland who has a number of middling to interesting assets that they can make a push on. And, and these are all teams that are probably outside of this inner realm of true contenders as we approach uh, uh, the playoffs. And again, you layer in COVID and you layer in do some of these weird injuries from potentially overuse, right? And it just feels like a very open-ended opportunity and, and it, it, it it's a testament to just being good not necessarily great but just being good right because it's not i mean for all our blazer fans out there like it doesn't it's not crazy to me that they win four series right i mean you have the right <laughs> guy or the wrong guy get covid and or roll an ankle or whatever it is and all of a sudden right they're in the conference finals and and you got a puncher's chance and you've got Damian Lillard on your team. I mean, they have a point differential of negative one, but they're like 12 and zero and games decided by three points or less. I mean, it's like insane. The statistical anomalies that's going on, but meanwhile, you watch Lillard play and you're like, Oh, this makes way more sense. He hits every shot when it matters. Right. And so you just, you have some of these teams that, again, I just, I think it's such a unique year. I'm hopeful for, for the, the drama that can come with the playoffs this year. Um, because there's such parity across both conferences.
0: Real quick. I think
2: if Daryl Morey does not make a trade, then that's a tell that Embiid's actually more hurt than we think. Because I, I think otherwise he'll make a trade, because his big thing is there's a chance of opportunity, you don't let it pass. They're second in defense now, but they're only 13th in offense. If they could get a little higher in the offense, I mean, Embiid's been hurt, which doesn't help that number, um, but their defense is great. So I think that'd be a... Another potential buyer, but yeah, D. Sorry to interrupt. What were you going to say?
0: Oh no, I just had a quick little side comment there that I, uh, Blazer fans are still reeling a little bit from losing by forty points to the Mavericks last night. So appreciate that little <laughs> shout out to give us some hope again, Michael. Well, well speaking
2: you- of speaking of hope, the. Uh- <laughs> We, we talked a little earlier about the MVP, and now we've, you know, MB was the favorite. He's gone down. LeBron's the favorite. He's gone down. Um, if if Jokic, Jokic goes down next, it might end up being Doncic or Giannis. Do you know who it actually could be who probably is the best player right now? Lillard. James Harden. Oh. <laughs> how crazy – it would be the COVID year of basketball. I mean, the bubble year was even crazier, but how about the year of COVID that a guy who deep-six submarines his team <laughs> – gets traded and then wins the M V P for his new team. I mean he again X out the Houston part, he has been insane for them. I mean, they don't have not had Durant since his first like three weeks and they've been incredible. He is so good.
0: He is, yeah, I still think when we were talking about yeah, Harden will need to uh you know adjust his game and, and <laughs> play a little more off the ball and uh I think we were all guilty of that one to some degree.
1: <laughs> well, his game has changed.
0: I mean, I think it's
1: it's unfair to suggest that he is playing peak James Ball like he was playing in Houston. And I think it's in large part to the point Sharks made on, on the pod a couple uh, days ago. It's just Houston had this inability or unwillingness to go over the, the cap or go into the tax. And. The roster, as decimated as as Brooklyn's is in terms of depth, they still have top tier talent, and they have key role players playing really significant roles. I mean, Joe Harris, Kyrie Irving, obviously Durant's hurt, but you have these guys around him that really are perfectly suited to his capabilities. And there's a level of irony to be that Daryl Morey spent like seven or eight years trying to build the perfect roster around Durant with these handcuffs on. And meanwhile, the nets go and and offer the poo poo platter for Harden. And and as a result, they have this super dynamic roster around him.
2: I mean, do you with, with Durant out though? I mean, I agree with what you're saying. If Durant's playing, it's a totally different ballpark, but if he's not playing, is this roster really better than the 65 win rocket roster when they hadn't gone super small yet capella was very strong at center I and mean, he's better than any center that they have you know paul was you know was hurting right i mean to d loves earlier point he was sort of in that he was we were fearful he was cratering he was just taking a little dip before he jumped right back to the top of his game um, they had a number of role players around him at that point I don't know. I don't think the roster is is that different. I mean, what what do you see with that, Michael? I just think I think that
1: the the players in Houston, right? That Paul era team, right? Chris Paul, I think, is duplicative. Is more duplicative of James's capabilities than Kyrie is. Kyrie, I think, is a natural two guard. We're seeing him in peak in this, and I think it's why actually, you know, Kyrie is such a fascinating player playing alongside uh Harden and it, and it's actually it's it's actually it, it put a light bulb off in my brain about why Murray and Jokic are so funny together but I'll go into that later the thing about <laughs> Harden that I think is so fascinating is is he has Kyrie alongside him as what functionally is a two guard and then he has Joe Harris who's who's like the best shooter he's ever played with is that I mean is that a fair comment I mean I think it is I'm trying to remember all of the instances, but... Maybe is, other
0: than Chris Paul, but yeah. A little sure. better than Eric Gordon, it, I think.
1: Well, and Gordon, again, is another player who who in his, you know, peak of his powers, Eric Gordon is a good shooter, but he's more traditionally still going to be a one-on-one player. I mean, when he was coming out of Indiana, when he was in... And, and with the Clippers in the first couple of years, I mean, what he was sort of regarded as, and when he went to New Orleans, he was regarded as sort of being this bowling ball, physical, slashing player. And then he obviously evolved as a shooter. So I just think that roster was created in such a way. What about Ryan Anderson? More duplicative. <laughs> <laughs> more duplicative to Trevor Ariza? <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's... I mean, Ariza... Not against the Warriors. (laughs) Some of the statistics you've seen, I mean, I think when Tucker got traded, it was fascinating to me. There was some analysis done that he literally has, like, the best... Over the last several years of his career, he's had the best sort of um, serving of of three-point attempts. Like, the best looks, right? The most open, the most standstill, like, just money in the bank, and he shot, like, 34% on those. Which, again, mid-30s from a corner three-point shooter who plays good defense, you sort of accept that. And he's like, oh, he's a 3 and D guy. But when you look at the qual- the shot quality he had, I mean, it compared to some guys that are actually good shooters, you kind of ask yourself, is P.J. Tucker what we thought he is, right? And how different is that than Jeff Green or Bruce Brown or this Claxton kid who came up from the G League? I mean, you have these interesting guys that are coming yeah. alongside... Harden and I start to wonder like, I just it feels this team feels to fit his capabilities, and it doesn't require him to play James Ball quite at the peak of, of what he was doing in Houston because of the the, the kind of players yeah. and complementary talents around him.
2: I, I hear you on late James there. I, I think when they went full ISO, I, I think this is more what it reminds me of as kind of earlier. Like early D'Antoni when they were like really good with Chris Paul. But I take your point that, you know, I I agree. Kyrie's back to his Cavs days where he could just like hunt, you know. He was just a predator. He can just come in and out and attack. I think, Michael, you made that point. Emphasize, I think, exactly right. You know, with LeBron being ball dominant, he could just play off of that and just step in to, you know, take over for periods of time, come in and out hit big shots, you know. So I, I totally agree. I mean, that – and I think that was the part that never really made sense was the – well, you know, hard not to play off the ball. He, I mean, he's just been just as ball dominant with them as, you know, as he's been in the past. I mean, he's he's making all the guys you're talking about better. I mean, they all are lo- – I mean, that, that – the supporting cast was not looking this good before Harden got there yeah. in terms of, like, what they're doing. um I mean, I just think it's just, again, it's just proof that he is just an all-time great. I mean, it's funny, like, Maury gets a lot of criticism. He said he was a better scorer than Jordan. I mean, you know, it's it's pretty out-there stuff. But Harden is just – he is just, you know, he can make an offense go just because of him. And yet you said, Michael, if you put – sort of a predator score like Kyrie next to him, who's also a great shooter, and you put Joe Harris next to him as a great shooter. I mean, he can really make everyone else great on his own. He can he can make guys have I mean, he can make DeAndre Jordan look like he has life back in him again. I mean DeAndre Jordan was like dead in the water before <laughs> before they traded for Harden and now now he's rim running like the old days. Well I, I, still I can't. just think it's I'll
1: just say this. The thing about – the biggest difference to me is I watch the Nets and it's not a sloggy, terrible experience. And I think those last couple of years of Houston basketball aesthetically was just so unenjoyable for me that that there there has I – mean, I want to continue to dig into what the differences are and why it feels – it feels different to watch James do what he's doing now versus what he was doing and, and again I do want to be hesitant that we're not doing some entire referendum on the Nets given the fact that Durant's out and when he comes back it could look a whole different way again you mean so, the,
2: the best player in the league has been injured Is that what you're saying? exactly
0: <laughs> I do think I mean the, the supporting cast for the Nets, which we've always felt the, the big three were going to do their thing, but they, they needed those guys to at least make some level of contribution that would help them to be better than the other elite teams in the Eastern Conference. And And I've been impressed by how the pieces are coming together. Yes, Harden makes them them look better. Um, but uh, And I don't know how much Blake Griffin will bring to the table, but <laughs> some of the other the yeah, other guys who, uh, the one guy disappeared. Reggie Perry was that the guy we talked about? Uh, I don't know what oh, happened yeah, to him. Like Claxton guy. Uh, filled Claxton that role Claxton took it over. Yeah.
2: Well, and, and it's the part about Harden is he's a willing passer. He is a willing passer, and maybe that's to your point, Michael. Maybe the reason we should look into this more. Maybe the reason that it looks better is because there are guys like the guys he's playing with are a better mix or have different skill sets, or you know, or maybe he's just a little bit more you know, wants to share even more than he did. Like, he's sort of like, I am I recognize I'm playing with two all-timers and Durant and Kyrie, so I'm going to be even more in distribution mode. But he's always been a willing passer. He will always make the pass for this open shot. I mean, people will get annoyed and tired of staying in the corner for him. But to your point about Tucker, I mean, he made him that money. I mean, Tucker can complain all he wants about not, not getting a new contract. But, you know, without James Harden, like, You know, kind of, we saw what he is. I mean, it's not just, maybe it's not just he just aged 10 years and six months and hit that crevice we've talked about. Maybe it's just because James Harden left. We saw him for who he really
0: was the whole time. It is still hard not to think about that Houston team and think about the one Chris Paul hamstring injury away from perhaps overcoming and defeating the superpower warriors uh, and how much that changed. Legacy. We'll see we'll see what Harden's legacy ends up to be after this uh this Brooklyn Nets experience. But that's well, watching a whole other topic. how they
1: perform so far. Are they presumptively the favorites now that, that with the injury uncertainty across some of these other contenders?
0: I would say yes. Yes. That's why I, the, this whole Buck seventy sixers rivalry can heat up uh, all they want to, <laughs> but I think the team to beat is gonna be Nets. <laughs> Dwight Howard has Made another prediction. <laughs> He's called out Claxton
2: and DeAndre Jordan. <laughs> They're meeting outside the Barclays Center. No, I, I think they are the favorite, and I think this was part of what they were thinking when they made the deal, was that when you have injuries in a weird year, especially, you know, Durant, especially coming off of an Achilles, even though he looked so amazing earlier in the season, like having three guys, so you can at least always have two guys. Chris, I mean, Kyrie's, I think... Unfortunately has some personal for some personal reasons it's going away from the team. But it's like if Harden's out there every night, they got a shot, man. They got a shot against basically everybody. So I don't know. I mean, it's it's if Durant stays out longer and these other MVP candidates start falling away, it'll be interesting to see how high Harden gets on people's ballots, considering, you know, what he did to the the Rockets at the beginning of the season. I mean, he is I mean, it, it's just what he's doing is amazing. And, and it's not like he even looks like he's in that much better shape than he was <laughs> at the beginning of the season. It's not like he's just like, you know, he didn't do the Draymond lose 20 pounds during the season thing. He just kind of looks the
0: same, but he's just so
2: good. It doesn't even matter.
0: I think just the body changed a little bit, as we know it can when you get older. But uh. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Hey D, easy, easy. I was,
2: uh, no, we could all relate to that one. Um, <laughs> I did. On that note, D, I did really like the fact to see. It made me feel better a little bit. Was that the uh, uh, Louisiana opened up the COVID vaccinations, you know, to like a much broader group of people? Um, including people who had a relatively high BMI index, and a number of unnamed Pelicans players actually qualified for oh. for having high BMI. Oh, right. So I say, take that BMI, yeah. BMI, you are full of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <Nice>. <laughs> Me and the Pelicans guys, woo, we're together. Nice. Do this.
1: <laughs> BMI is discriminatory against athletes. Just, you know, <laughs> just remember that
2: it's all muscle, hundred percent muscle, <laughs> muscle heavier than fat. Oh.
0: All right guys, uh we're ready to close it out as we usually do Let's with do some it. trivia. I believe yes, uh Ryan, you cut the lead. Michael's lead to 2 after last week. 111 to 109. Thank you. Michael, I have uh <laughs> Michael I have more bad news for you. You are not going to like this topic because <laughs> We're but but going to settle into you, the era of
1: 1984. Uh,
0: oh, it's not right, historical. Continue. I understand. Is the this an Elgin Baylor not, question? It's not historical. No. But uh, I just have to say when the research team, when they pick the topic, it, it cannot be changed regardless of what Michael brings up early on in the podcast. The question is about charges. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the question wow. is, which NBA <laughs> player leads the league in charges drawn per game? Courtesy again of our league his, Historically or currently? So currently in this season right now, which player leads the league in charges drawn per game? Okay. As opposed to the other category here, which is charges drawn per 36 minutes, but uh, we're going to stick with per game. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Your four candidates are Montrez Harrell, Charlotte's Caleb Martin, Thaddeus Young, Thaddeus Young, excuse me. That's right. Or Kyle Lowry. Which of those four guys leads the league in charges drawn per game? Let me know if you need to repeat the answers. Well, I would I think
1: I'm gonna rephrase the question is which player leads the league in? define the intention of the game of basketball and actually getting in the way of their offensive player instead of actually challenging the ball at the rim better known as a charge I, i think that's the better way to phrase this question and to also uh display my my hate my vitriol for the charge i just it does not make sense to me in a team in a game with the best athletes in the world why would we incentivize kyle lowry my answer to this question getting his big, huge ass in the way of the best athletes in the world. Easy, easy. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. Uh, in the way of our athletes. And it, it 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 defies the intention of the game. I'd rather watch the high flyers fly and get challenged at, at the peak of their powers. But my answer is Kyle Lowry. I think that uh, he is a well-regarded uh, charge taker uh, and, and and he's a heady player so give it to him he's using the rules to his advantage but it certainly is uh, is is something that I I'm not here to watch so uh, Rye what, what do you think
2: so basically this answer is the head encouragable of the uh, of the current NBA is that <laughs> is that right James Naismith would not uh, not like these guys in his game he come up with some new rules to make sure they weren't affecting it. I, as an aside, you know the f- the few moments of the NCAA tournament that's come come on when I haven't been able to, to escape them, is uh, it, I do think the the college game is somewhere between Springfield and the NBA right now. I'm not sure if it's in the 1920s or 30s or what. I mean, there was some really bad 7-10 matchup I was watching, and it was it was like. 17 to 12, with like six minutes left in the first <laughs> half. It was like a sunset varsity basketball game circa 1996, man. It was just – it was ugly, ugly as they can come. Uh, so so we'll see about that. I, yeah, I, I, my last question is, is, is for this D going forward, can you confirm – if you can answer the question without getting any of the options, do you get an extra point? Because I agree that it is D Kyle Lowry. That was going to be my guess – before you even read the answers i got a little worried when d till d came up but i will also go with kyle lowry
0: thank you guys well that that was an interesting response to that question and we appreciate the the passion michael but uh in the future we won't allow you to deconstruct the questions in, in such a way but uh <laughs> regardless i cannot penalize you for that you both got it right there will be no points awarded or there. Uh, in terms of the head-to-head, it's a push. So, <laughs> nice job. Uh. My
1: my question is: Is what was the background on on the alternative options? Like, where where did Caleb Martin? Is he actually on the list for charges drawn per game?
0: Number
2: three. Wow. Yeah. Is he one of the twin brothers? Is that Caleb Martin?
1: Yeah, I can't keep keep them straight. I just I love when twins end up on the MB, in an NBA team together. I mean, how improbable, right? That you have brothers, let alone twin brothers, good enough to both be NBA players, and somehow more often than not, they seem to end up on the same team. I mean, the more well, I, I mean, now are in the same city, but. Uh, I think one of them took a discount at one point. To no, that's what Phoenix? I was going to say.
2: The next step is to pull the Phoenix Suns trick and sign them both to below-market deals to keep them together ostensibly and then, then trading one immediately. So that's
1: Trading like, one to, to, to Detroit. I
2: wouldn't want the Mori on my on my bad
0: list. The Lopez twins, you know, we can deal with that. But the Mori, I don't
2: want to mess me on those guys.
0: Guys, what it comes down to is there is always room for a player who knows how to take charges. So Caleb Martin will always have a future in the NBA. <laughs> Well,
2: even Harold is a weird one. Cause like how many big guys that are that athletic take charges? I mean, I, <laughs> Harold's number two, by right. the way, Harold's number two. Yeah. He takes a lot of charges. <laughs> it's like, you Literally don't really see that no with his like dunking and yelling at people is that on the other. Hand, he takes charges and yells. So good for him doing it both ways.
0: All right, guys. Well, thank you. That was a spirited one. And uh, our apologies to Jim Nance, but we did not want to talk about college basketball. <laughs>
1: That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us at the 3D Love NBA Podcast. We'll be back next time, but until then, remember throw it down, big man.
0: This isn't just a great podcast, it's a triumph of the human spirit.